You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, February 11th. I'm Nicole McNulty. And I'm Katie Anastas. While Valentine's Day is a boon for New York florists, the bulk of their business has been hit hard over the past year. The 52 weeks a year, you're sending flowers to many companies. Every weekend, you're doing a wedding. None of that is happening. We've heard about how online schooling will affect the way students learn, but how does it change the way they play? Prior pandemics hold clues. The pandemic of 1918 was one that did force all people indoors more. Lunar New Year is tomorrow, but with Chinatown's parade postponed, the city's Asian communities are seeking ways to celebrate safely under pandemic restrictions. And museums, including the Met, consider putting artworks up for sale, sparking debate about when it's okay to sell art meant for public exhibition. Part of the power of museums is that they are in the forever business. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Jack Stone Truitt. City Field is now open as a mega vaccination site. The stadium has the capacity to vaccinate 5,000 people per day, though there are currently only around 200 daily appointments available. Mayor de Blasio stated a goal of reaching full capacity next week. It's going to be building up more all the time. Uh, We're going to get to a 24-7 basis. That's our goal. The Mets ballpark is the latest New York stadium to become a vaccination site. Yankee Stadium was converted to vaccinate Bronx residents last week. Appointments at City Field will be reserved for Queens residents only. The mayor said he is hoping that Barclays Center in Brooklyn will also become a site. Limited crowds will soon be able to return to the state's sports arenas and performance halls. Yesterday, Governor Cuomo announced a plan to allow venues with 10,000 or more seats to reopen at 10% capacity later this month. While we're doing vaccines and while we're controlling the spread of COVID, we also have to, at the same time, get this economy open intelligently and in a balanced way. Guidelines from the State Health Department require anyone attending a performance or sporting event to have tested negative for COVID within 72 hours and adhere to assigned socially distanced seating. Face coverings and temperature checks will also be required. The announcement comes after the Buffalo Bills successfully implemented these measures for a game in January. The Brooklyn Nets will host the first approved event under these guidelines at Barclays Center on February 23rd. Bruce Springsteen is facing drunken driving charges after he was arrested riding his motorcycle near the Jersey Shore in November. The music icon reportedly had a blood alcohol level of .02, well below the legal limit, at the time of his arrest. He is due to appear in court in the next few weeks. New Yorkers woke up to another inch or two of snow this morning and the cold snap will continue as temperatures dip back into the teens tomorrow and Saturday. The city has already surpassed its yearly average snowfall this season with two more feet than last winter. It's currently 30 degrees and cloudy in Central Park. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Jack Stone Truitt. New York City is overwhelmingly Democratic. There just aren't that many Republicans. And now, a new group called Be Counted is encouraging those Republicans to register as Democrats. And the deadline, or deadlines, to switch party affiliations is confusing. Jarrett Berg, an attorney and voting rights advocate, is here to talk about it. Jarrett, thanks for being with us today. Thrilled to do it. Uh, And thanks for raising this important issue. So these deadlines, the city board is saying that the deadline is February 14th. The state board is saying it's February 12th. Why? So um, I can explain this, and I will try to do it in a, in a not-too-legalese legal, uh, way. This year in particular, with the way that a very flawed law is written, uh, could disenfranchise people if they don't take action swiftly. Um, so 
Albany enacted a law I mentioned uh, in the last two years that changed the party enrollment deadline to February 14th. Uh, but because it's pegged to a calendar date and not a particular amount of days before an election, obviously that moves around uh, with each year. Um, so this year, February 14th lands on a Sunday. Um, so the deadline is Sunday, but for practical purposes, if the offices aren't gonna be open on the weekend, that's why you see the state board uh, telling people to get those in by Friday. The deadline is that the Board of Elections must receive your change in enrollment by Sunday, February 14th. In New York City, the board will have an office that's open for people to walk in and do that. But uh, for all intents and purposes, people need to get those forms in so that the board can receive it. Um, and so that means if, if a person's sitting there today and they're not enrolled in a party, they should fill that form out and bring it to the Board of Elections today or tomorrow. There will be weekend hours, but it's not so easy to find uh, where those offices are and what those hours are. So I'd really like to focus in on this group B Counted. They essentially are trying to get to get people in the Republican Party to register as Democrats, and they're framing it as you won't have a say in the election if you're not a registered Democrat. And I'm curious, with that plus their misleading mailers, I'm just curious what you think about that and what groups like that are doing. Um, so just with the caveat that uh, I'm an attorney and I haven't seen the mailers that you're talking about. So if they're misleading as to dates and deadlines and they're giving people incorrect information about their rights, that is illegal and it should be illegal and those should be prosecuted. So um, from a voter protection standpoint, which is the world that I come out of, uh, we see pernicious efforts to misrepresent what people's rights are about who's entitled to vote and who's not with criminal justice issues, with the hours and locations of voting. That sort of misinformation uh, is damaging and dangerous. And if it's intentional, it should absolutely be made more illegal and prosecuted. Uh, but if we're merely mailing people out a registration form and telling them if you're not enrolled in a party, you, sh you might want to enroll if you'd like to vote in these primaries, I don't see anything illegal about that. Uh, and it's, if they're targeting you know, certain segments of the population, I call that good organizing. I just don't think we can criminalize that. Jarrett Berg is an attorney and voting rights advocate in New York. Jarrett, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. It makes me feel alive. It gets me outside. Um, it keeps me in touch with nature. And it just helps me feel really balanced in my life. Gordon Bakulis, running coach with New York Roadrunners, a club that hosts running classes throughout the city. I think people think that running is hard, um, and it's certainly challenging, but it's it should be fun and it should be, you know, within their capabilities. So we just work with people to gradually raise their fitness and keep it fun. If you can't run right away, that's okay. Start with a brisk walking program and then gradually build up to running. During the pandemic, a lot of people haven't been able to work out or haven't felt comfortable working out. So we're practicing all the social distancing guidelines and giving people a chance to stay active. 
it's the best part of my day, coming out and helping runners. Every morning is just a gift. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News, podcast available Thursdays at 5 p.m. For most people, flower shops are the place they go for Valentine's Day or before dinner with their in-laws. But for Manhattan florists, the heart of the business is corporate work, like the flowers you see in hotel lobbies or in executive suites and offices. In the past year, those clients have nearly vanished. So florists in the city are doing what they can to get by. Jack Stone Truitt has the story. Gramercy Park Flower Shop in the Plaza Hotel has been selling New Yorkers flowers since 1904. It has weathered World Wars, the Great Depression, even another pandemic. But nothing has hit its bottom line like this last year. Owner Tom Sakas says business is down 90% from a year ago. All the corporate work, the 52 weeks a year you're sending flowers to many companies, every weekend you're doing a wedding, none of that is happening. Since the pandemic, flower deliveries nationally are actually trending upward as people order online. But Manhattan's flower industry has been hit hard. Hotels, restaurants, weddings, all of those orders are more or less gone. Flowers on Essex, located in Chelsea, has lost three of its four main hotel accounts, and the one remaining is operating at just 10% of its usual capacity. Owner Bill Fraser says he took out a small business loan and began wholesaling roses just to get by. Valentine's Day typically brings Fraser twenty-five dollars to $30,000 in sales. This year, he will be happy to get a third of that. I've been in business 38 years, so I have some customers that will call me all the time for holidays and stuff. But uh, even a lot of them have cut back a little bit because I think money's tight with a lot of people. So It doesn't help that this year's holiday comes amidst a snowstorm and lands on a Sunday, usually a slow day for flower deliveries. It's kind of a double hit. You know, we get hit twice as hard this year. The heart of Manhattan's floral industry is on 28th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. Walking down the block these days, many storefronts are dark, and the ones that are open are having to adapt. Some, like Starbright Floral Design, are doing better than others. We have used every possible resource that you can imagine. Owner Nick Fato says before the pandemic, online and individual orders were not a key part of Starbright's business. But that's changed as employees of their former corporate clients have become new individual customers who order online. He says other shops have had a harder time pivoting and finding new customers. But he tries to speak with other florists and share business ideas as best he can. This is not a time to, uh, uh, to cheer on uh, when, you know, let's say a competitor is not doing well. Uh, this is a time that we all need to band together and to support each other uh, and to make sure that everybody makes it through. Fatos and others await Manhattan's corporate world to open back up, but are hoping for a much-needed boost from Valentine's Day. Jack Stone Truitt, Columbia Radio News. It's been reported that the Metropolitan Museum of Art is considering de-accessioning, or selling valuable pieces of art to raise funds to pay for collection maintenance. It's a very controversial move in the museum world, but one that many institutions are now considering as they struggle to balance their public mission with financial survival during the pandemic. Fei Lu reports. Museums do remove work from their collections, but rarely for cash sale. Sometimes they'll donate duplicate or flawed works to other institutions. Then COVID happened, and museums lost months of admissions and gift shop sales, leaving them cash-strapped. Erica Sanger is the executive director of the Museum Association of New York. She says for an institution as vast as the Metropolitan Museum, the maintenance costs alone are substantial. The Metropolitan Museum of Art is the largest art museum in the United States. It is the largest physical plant with the largest collection. A leak in the roof at the Metropolitan Museum of Art is not going to cost the same amount to fix as a leak in the roof of a small upstate historical society. 
Last week, in an interview with the New York Times, the Metropolitan's director, Max Holland, said the museum was considering decessioning works in its permanent collection. It's not clear how the Met might use the income from sales. We asked the museum to comment for the story and they didn't respond. Last April, the Association of Art Museum Directors lifted its restrictions on museum decessioning art for a period of two years. And there is a general recognition in the art world that museums may now have to take steps that a year ago were considered unthinkable. I think part of the power of museums is that they are in the forever business, but if a work is acquired by a museum, the tacit understanding is it won't get deaccessioned. Rosanna Flaudy is a professor in the Museum Studies program at NYU. She says accessioning may solve short-term fiscal problems, but has long-term risks. The fear is that it opens the floodgate for museums to go ahead and deaccession their works to then keep the lights on. And I think many would argue that that's just bad decision-making. She says if decessions become regular practice, artists and donors may hesitate to donate art to museums, and short-term finances shouldn't influence decisions about what stays in museum collections. Hazel Clark is a professor at Parsons School of Design. This is what museums do because, you know, basically they're, they're, institu- they're cultural institutions, but also, you know, they're, they're holding their objects are also commodities. I mean, they have market value. So that's, that's the truth of the matter. So, you know, it, it has happened in many other museums and is happening in other museums, you know, whether we like it or not. The Met is reportedly consulting with auction houses before making more specific decession plans. Fei Lu, Uptown Radio. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Katie Anastas. And I'm Nicole McNulty. Coming up, New York City's senior immigrants can be hard to reach, a challenge for city workers trying to offer help during the pandemic, a federal class action lawsuit about special education, and how children's play can be impacted during health crises. These stories and more coming up. City agencies have long faced challenges connecting immigrant seniors to critical services. The pandemic has made it even harder. Yesterday, Lorraine Cortez-Vasquez, commissioner of the New York Department for the Aging, met with city council. She said one of the biggest problems is convincing immigrant elders that the government isn't always a threat. It can also provide much needed help. The fear is also often due to their social political backgrounds and distrust in government and organizations from their native countries of origin and fear of being reported for not having adjusted their immigration status. Maggie Hernandez is a program coordinator at a senior center in Washington Heights. I spoke with her about how the pandemic is impacting the center's ability to support Latino immigrants. What are the main challenges facing immigrant seniors in Washington Heights right now? I think the first and most important thing is the language barrier. Most of our members speak no English at all, and so they rely on the senior center to do a variety of different things for them, including reading basic letters. Uh, They receive lots of letters for benefits that need to be renewed. Some of them are getting cut off in 30 days. If it's not returned, they don't know what these letters say, and they need a lot of help. The, The extra challenge right now because of the virus is that Many of our seniors are technically challenged and unable to even take a snapshot of a letter to send to us. Immigrant communities often have a fear of providing personal information because of concerns about immigration status. Have you seen any fear among immigrant seniors to provide personal information? What ends up happening with our members is that, yes, they get lots of phone calls from agencies all over the city 
and they're very reluctant to offer information or even sometimes get, you know, certain benefits that they would qualify for because of it. But what we've asked them to do is if they are unsure of who they're speaking to and need assistance, you they can call the center. We try to serve as an intermediary. What support do caregivers need right now? I think that a lot of caregivers honestly don't understand that feeling stressed is normal. I think there's a certain level of guilt and then even admitting that they're tired and stressed out and, and frustrated. Some caregivers don't even know that it's normal to feel the way that they're feeling and that there is support for them to have. What's something that people who don't work in senior services might not know about their needs right now? Everybody is stressed and focusing on what's needed within their little nucleus, but they're not realizing that they're leaving their elderly mother, you know, aside and feeling kind of lonely and neglected. And all it takes is a five-minute call a couple times a week to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I hope you're okay. That makes a big difference. My mother's a member of the center. She's 87 years old, who at first was reluctant to use a smartphone, but she learned it and she's mastered it. It's a running joke for me with the, with our seniors because before the pandemic, they were very much against technology. They would always say, you young people, you're you're always carrying your phones and technology is so important to you. After the pandemic, they're all calling and sending messages saying, please teach me. (laughs) I think the most important thing is that a simple phone call makes a huge difference. Maggie Hernandez is a caseworker and online program coordinator at Star Senior Center in Washington Heights. Maggie, thank you so much again for talking to me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Kids with disabilities from autism to blindness to bipolar disorder are struggling with distance learning during the pandemic. But a new federal class action lawsuit alleges that New York City's special education system was troublesome far before COVID-19. It challenges what the complaint calls the, quote, segregated school system for students with disabilities on Staten Island. Nicole McNulty has the story. New York is one of the only cities in the country with a separate system for kids with disabilities, District 75. Mary Hansen's daughter, Juliana, has cerebral palsy and learning disabilities. Hansen said when Juliana was in kindergarten, her principal said she would be better off at a District 75 school. Hansen says removing Juliana from her neighborhood school would stop her from reaching her full potential. Why is it detrimental? Children with disabilities are not seen. They're put away. They're not part of society. There are 25,000 kids in this district, and many are bused two hours to go to schools across the city. Juliana's ride would have been half an hour, but her mom refused to send her. Why should she have to leave her zone school, which is literally a five-minute walk, to get on a bus to go to a school that provides services when her school should be able to provide the service? That's not equality. That's what the new lawsuit filed in the Eastern District of New York on behalf of three Staten Island students argues, too. Louis Bossing is with the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law. He's one of the lawyers arguing the case. District 75 students are unnecessarily segregated. Their days are completely separate. They may go into a separate entrance. They may be in a trailer behind the main building. Bossing says research shows kids with disabilities learn more in integrated settings. He says kids in this district don't have access to the same electives, sports, or clubs as other students. 
He says that violates their civil rights and three federal laws. According to the IDEA Act passed in 1975, if a child can be taught in a general education setting, they should be. A couple decades later, the Supreme Court ruled segregating people with disabilities unnecessarily is a form of discrimination. Can you actually get a free and appropriate public education um, in a segregated setting where you have no interaction with other students without disabilities, no chance to learn from peers, peers who may model appropriate kinds of social skills or self-regulation skills. Bossing and other lawyers arguing the case are asking the Department of Education to give more resources to community schools. So if a parent chooses to send their kid to their local school, they would get their therapies. Bossing says they chose Staten Island because if it works there, it could work in the rest of the city. But Anne-Marie Knabel says the separate system works for her son, Dane, a 12-year-old with Down syndrome. She says he thrives in his small, contained classes. Academically, he couldn't keep up with his non-disabled peers. The children in the class are all on the same wavelength. A judge now needs to decide if other families can join the lawsuit. Nicole McNulty, Columbia Radio News. Thousands of New Yorkers will celebrate the Lunar New Year tomorrow. For many in the city's Asian communities, the holiday would normally be one of the biggest celebrations of the year, often with multiple generations of the family gathered under the same roof. But as Megan Zerez reports, though this year's celebration is different, it doesn't mean that business is all bad. It's the day before the Lunar New Year. Normally, this corner on Mott Street would be much, much louder. But with the annual Lunar New Year's parade postponed, there's no symbols or firecrackers. There are, however, still the last-minute shoppers. It's definitely quieter, but people still manage to come out, I guess, in the supermarkets because they still want to do some celebrations at home, but, uh, but it is quieter. Sandy works nearby. Like many, she says she'll be celebrating at home with just her family. Well, yeah, we have to limit our social um, because gatherings because of the whole COVID situation. But even without the big gatherings, businesses like tofu shop Fong On are still seeing a lot of action. For us, it's a very important holiday, too. Yesterday was pretty busy at the store because I think many people want to buy our products ahead of time. That's Marina Eng. She and her husband, Paul, own the tofu shop, which has been in the Ang family for three generations. Joe Boo, who runs an Asian grocery delivery service, says he's also seeing a rush for the Lunar New Year. We've been working around the clock. I'm talking like 15-hour days, 14-hour days, um, just to keep up with demand. Earlier in the pandemic, Boo started his delivery site, AsianVeggies.com, to help his dad adopt his vegetable wholesale business to a retail model. Around March uh, of last year, essentially, um, a lot of Asian supermarkets and restaurants had shut down. Now, him being a produce supplier of Asian veggies, um, his where basically his business had halted close to zero. But since then, the website has taken off. Now, with more people opting to stay home for their celebrations, Boo and his dad are almost busier than they were before the pandemic. Yeah, there, there may not be family gatherings, but that means like instead of wanting one Napa cabbage for the family, it's two orders we're getting. 
As you might have guessed, food is a huge part of many Lunar New Year celebrations. Normally, my granduncle um, will go to his place the day of, and uh, he literally is cooking nonstop in the kitchen. Like he'll he'll make like serving sizes of like enough for five people. This year, Boo says it'll just be his parents, him, and his girlfriend. But he says everyone will still be celebrating and eating, even if it is separately. Megan Serez, Uptown Radio. Well, uh, how old do you think I am? I'm going to be 80 this year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is Peter Barton, documentary filmmaker and death facer in Morningside Park. Right now I'm working on a movie about a therapist I know who specializes in working with the dying. My partner and I are going to visit a camp in Montana that's dedicated to women with ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer is about 70% fatal, so many of these women are having their last hurrah. I'm a three-time cancer survivor. My avoidance, my denial is pretty strong. This project is a little bit a way of educating me out of my avoidance of this topic, out of my, my sort of wishful thinking that I'm gonna live forever. And I'm trying to come, come to terms with my mortality. I'm trying, I'm trying to grow up. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News. Podcasts available Thursdays at 5 p.m. Due to the pandemic, New York City kids are spending a lot of school time in front of screens. Parents are at their wits' end because today's kids also play online with TikTok or YouTube. As Kat Smith finds, in the past, public health crises also brought kids indoors and altered how they had fun. 100 years ago, the streets of New York City were crawling with kids. It's where they spent their free time, transforming whole blocks into their playgrounds. Kids running around, throwing a ball, jumping rope using and appropriating mailboxes and telephone poles and uh, sewer uh, covers. That's right, sewer covers, as bases for baseball. Howard Chudikoff is author of Children at Play, an American History. He says back in 1918, when the flu pandemic arrived, it changed the way people lived, much like COVID has today. The pandemic of 1918 did force all people indoors more whether they were quarantined or whether they were just trying to avoid being exposed to other people who were sick. At that time, improvements in manufacturing and assembly line production ushered in a slew of affordable toys that kept kids busy indoors. Some of the most classic toys that have come down to us over the last 100 years were first marketed in the 1910s. Tinker Toys, Erector sets, dolls, tea sets. Raggedy Ann and Lincoln Logs. But New York City kids weren't too isolated in 1918. City schools stayed open and kids enjoyed time with their friends between classes. But that was the flu. Polio epidemics were a different story. Polio again struck hard across the nation. Deserted beaches became a sign of the crippler's presence. Children were not allowed to leave their own yards. Kids were high risk for the paralyzing disease. Schools and playgrounds sometimes closed to curb the spread, but others stayed open. Kids with polio could spend months alone in bed, which brings us to a famous moment in game history. 
and it's called Candyland. And you don't have to be able to read to be able to play it. And is it ever fun? Legend has it, in 1948, a schoolteacher named Eleanor Abbott was recovering from the disease and met a lot of sick, lonely kids in the hospital. She hand-drew Candyland on butcher paper to keep them entertained. But today, between quarantine and online school, that kind of in-person fun is something kids can miss out on. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, students perform better when they get breaks for fun, like recess. Lauren McNamara, a psychologist who researches play, says this is a problem. A lot of people think play is trivial and secondary. I hope they come to the realization of the primacy of play and social connection, that it's right around there with the need for food. McNamara says it's not just kids. Parents also need more time for fun. Kat Smith, Columbia Radio News. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Renee Roden ran our show today. Leading our staff of reporters were senior producers Haley Jow, with help from assistant producer Faye Liu. Senior editor Arcelia Martin and assistant editor Kate Stockram led our copy team. Kat Smith managed our website today, and Megan Zarez and Jack Stone Truitt brought us today's news. Our instructors, Sally Hership, Ben Shapiro, and Patty Hirsch, advised our staff from New York, Massachusetts, and California. I'm Nicole McNulty. And I'm Katie Anastas. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening, and stay safe.